Well, up until about five years ago, every single time I opened up the closet that goes off of our master bedroom at home, I would see the same pair of shoes lying in the same position every time. They never moved. They were always there at the back of the closet. And as the years wore by and the dust began to accumulate on these shoes, it became harder and harder to see the mystical word emblazoned on the back of them, always seemingly trying to whisper to me, Nike, <laughs> Nike. Now, I had great plans for those shoes when I bought them. When I shelled out the 82 bucks or so that I um, paid for those shoes, I, had, I could picture them already romping joyfully across the pavement, conquering my community streets in a marvelous way. I could see their soft cushioning and their white racy styling perfectly complementing my increasingly toned and tanned calves. <laughs> It was going to be glorious to be in those shoes. It was going to mark a new turning point in my life. I was going to get in shape. But as the months wore on and the shoes lay there, never, never changing their position, I began to realize, like that old temptation song, it was just my imagination <laughs> running away with me. That's about as much running as I got done. I wonder how many of you laugh at that particular story because you can identify with it. Uh, you can uh, point to some area of your life where you had great plans for moving forward in a more disciplined way, achieving some important goal that you had, and then you found it very, very difficult to follow through, uh, to really exercise uh, more than just imagination about these things. What if we could actually discipline ourselves to do the things which we want to do in our clean, cleanest and clearest moments? Uh, and what if we could actually discipline ourselves to not do some of those other things which we know we really don't want to be about? What if we could get better control of our time or of our finances? What if we could exercise more self-control around those destructive emotions that sometimes come out in our relationships or harness... Um, our appetites more judiciously? What if we could really tighten up the laces of our will and spring forward in the best direction that we want to go in life? What if as fathers or as other kinds of leaders, we could actually show the people who watch us how this is done? If we could model that kind of self-discipline in a way that would rub off on the people round about us. Well, I believe that that future is possible and that that future is what God has in mind for you and for me. And I want to think about some of the practical ways we can walk into that future using this marvelous story from the life of Joseph as our guide. When we meet uh, Joseph in Genesis chapter 39, he is in the process of working his way up the ladder of opportunity. You may recall from the story past that Joseph uh, begins uh, in the narrative as the son of a household in uh, Palestine, in, in Canaan, the land of Canaan. He is 
a lowborn kid, uh, and yet God has given him a vision, a dream of something that he might yet become. Uh, he is unfortunately a bit arrogant. He has a lot of refining that is needed in his character, and he begins to get that in the most painful kind of way. He's rejected by his brothers, beaten up by them. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery. He winds up in far-off Egypt, totally forgotten, and then sold into the household of Potiphar. And as he's been humbled through these experiences, as he's turned his eyes towards God, God is now beginning to open up new opportunities for him. And Joseph rises to a position of significant influence in the household of one of the leading officers in, of the, of the uh, president of Egypt's administration, Potiphar. Now we know from um, the archaeological record, as well as from some of the written records from this time, something of what life in Potiphar's house would have been uh, like. Uh, we, we know that, that typically the upper, uh, the aristocracy of Egypt lived in these multi-storied homes with these marvelous balconies and these lavish uh, gardens. They were surrounded with all kinds of luxurious items with uh, rich rugs and, and lovely paintings and hand-carved chairs and alabaster vases. We found the record of these things. Uh, as we've studied this through history. And we know that this would have been the lifestyle to which Joseph now is growing accustomed. He, he had risen to this amazing position in Potiphar's household, being put in charge of everything uh, of this great man's affairs. And you can understand why experiencing all of the little indulgences that Joseph had experienced as part of this uh, milieu uh, might have inclined him to take hold of a very big indulgence when it was presented to him. And you can understand why other people in Potiphar's house, even Potiphar's own wife, accustomed to so many little indulgences, might consider it her right to take a very big indulgence. And so when the Scripture tells us that Potiphar's wife Notice that Joseph was well-built and handsome, the Bible says, uh, and said to him, come to bed with me. We half expect the story to flow like the typical TV screenplay. You know the kind I'm talking about. Neglected trophy wife of emotionally distant workaholic and highly talented but underpaid younger man find comfort in each other's arms. The desperate housewife finds the handsome young guy and the two uh, enjoy some pleasure, some long-denied, well-deserved pleasure together. This is the kind of story you could imagine unfolding here. But this isn't what happens in the story. This is not at all what happens. The Bible says that when Potiphar's wife offers Joe this pleasure, the kind of pleasure that was probably pretty attractive, I mean, Potiphar... I doubt he married badly. I imagine this woman was what we would call today a babe. She was a fabulous woman, no doubt. And when Joseph is offered this opportunity uh, to be with somebody who was extremely attractive uh, and where the likelihood of it ever being discovered by anybody was extremely low, Potiphar was always busy at work. <laughs> 
and, and, and when he was given this opportunity to do what was not only attractive but easy to get away with, and that was offered to him not just once, the Bible says, but day after day she made this offer to him. I mean, how much resolve does a guy have? And yet the scriptures say Joseph refused. He refused the invitation. Now, that word refused in the biblical text is a really interesting one because it, it, it's not a, a, a gentle or subtle uh, word for refusal. As if Joseph sort of weighed his options, thought about it for a while and said, yeah, maybe not now, but keep asking, you know. It, it's not that kind of a word at all. The Hebrew word for refused implies an active muscular, even angry, pushing away. That's the sense of that word. And you can hear the sense of it in, in the, the tone that Joseph responds to her with. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing? Jo Joseph pushes away from Potiphar's wife like a, a runner pushing away from the starting block in a race, or like a, like a, a halfback uh, who's got the goal line in sight pushes away the, the would-be defender on his way towards that score. And, and in fact, Joe pushes away so hard from the, the tempter in this particular instance, it, it, she tears his jersey. <laughs> she gets his cloak uh, in her hand. Um, this is the kind of violence of this encounter uh, that Joseph has. Now, there's a really important lesson for us, I think, right here. And I want to think about this with you. Would you like to have greater self-discipline in your life? Raise your hand if you think, you know, I'd like to be a little bit more disciplined about certain things. Yeah, we would. So, so here's how you can develop the kind of backbone that, that truly great leaders have to have if they're going to accomplish the most significant kinds of things and have the greatest kind of influence. And here's the first step. Muster up some holy passion to push away from whatever tempts you. Muster up some passion about it. Um, to, to push away from whatever it is that's trying to keep you from being less than your best self. Maybe you are caught up right now in something that is making you less than your best self. You, you're a smoker. Been there, done that. I get that. I get that slavery. Or maybe you're drinking too much. Or maybe you've got some other addiction going on in your life right now. Maybe you're under the spell of porno or, or the spell of the idiot box. And, and you're spending much too much of your life in the virtual world instead of in the real world getting stuff done. Maybe it's food that's one of your challenges that's a challenge for me. Uh, I, I, got, I got issues in, in that area of my life right now. My wife stocks our refrigerator with Klondike bars. Is that a loving thing to do to a man <laughs> trying to lose weight? She claims it's because we've got, you know, teenage sons and college-age sons, and they need to be fed. But I open up that refrigerator. I see the Klondike bar. She doesn't buy just the Heath kind. She buys the, the cookies and cream kind and the Reese's kind. It's painful. Maybe you've got a, 
a food addiction of some kind that you need to push away. Maybe it's a tendency to use violent words. They just erupt in moments of passion or maybe even violent actions towards people who are near you. Maybe it's some destructive thought pattern. You just cycle. This trigger happens and you just cycle into this really self-destructive pattern that you learned maybe when you were a kid. Perhaps it's a, a stubborn passivity in your life. Uh, you get into certain situations and you just go mute. <laughs> you, you lay down. You take stuff you shouldn't take. Um, you don't step out where you should get involved. Uh, maybe it, it's an illicit romance that is starting. Uh, or you can feel yourself on the verge of or you're already into the middle of. Something in your life is, is reaching for you to claim you and to, to pull you off track from God's great purposes in your life. And, and whatever that is, it's, it's, it's keeping you from being the person that God wants you to be in the fullest sense of it. You have got to want to tear free of that. Uh, you, you have got to muster up in yourself some holy passion about this and determine that you're not letting this stuff or this situation or this sin own me any longer. And you've got to push away from it with all of the strength that you can. So what is it? What is it for you that you need to tear yourself away from? That's step one. Mustering up that passion, that anger against what's holding you. Here's a second part. Uh, here's a second step you can take, and without this one, I'm not sure the first one does us that much good. Every single runner, every good runner, knows this second idea. If you want to make real progress down the track or the field or the course of your life, then you have to remember to lift your head and look to heaven. Many years ago, there was a motion picture which nearly everybody saw. It was called Chariots of Fire. Uh, it told the story of the 1936 Olympics. Those Olympics have been uh, recaptured recently in the wonderful film Race that tells the story of Jesse Owens' amazing accomplishments. Uh, but in this particular story, um, the, the great hope of the, uh, the storyline is a gentleman by the name of Eric Liddell. Eric is a Scotsman. He is a runner for the uh, Olympic team of Great Britain, and they are competing in the Berlin Olympics. This is Hitler's Olympics. And there's a tremendous passion on the part of the British to, 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 to give Hitler a good slapping and, and to see uh, him uh, taken aback by the performance of the more civilized world. And uh, so in this particular storyline, a lot of hopes are riding on what Eric Liddell can do for Great Britain. He is an amazing runner. He is a 100-meter specialist, and he is the great promise of Britain for gold in those particular Olympics. It comes to pass, however, that, that the scheduling of the Olympic events uh, puts Eric's race, on the 100-meter race, on the on a Sunday, and Eric is a very strict Presbyterian missionary, actually, and a great Sabbath observer, and he withdraws from the race, and everybody is absolutely dumbfounded, and they try and talk him out of it, but he holds fast to his principle. He then goes and enters the 400-meter race instead, a race that is four times his preferred distance, four times more than he's really trained for, and the day of the race comes, 
and, and the gun goes off, and against the world's best 400-meter runners, Eric takes off from the starting blocks and rapidly falls behind. There is a groan in the crowd from all of the British supporters who were so hopeful that Eric would do something wonderful at those races. And, and everybody is just sh shaking their heads. But there's a journalist in the midst of the crowd who has been following Eric Liddell from almost the moment he came on the public scene. And the journalist says to some of the naysayers around him, wait, just wait. Wait till he lifts his head. And sure enough, moments later, you watch as Eric Liddell's head rocks back in this almost ecstatic expression of enjoyment as he looks up into the heavens. And it's not clear exactly what's going on. Is he, is he actually caught a vision of God? Uh, is it that he's that he's just lifting his head to, to catch more oxygen, to take in more air. Uh, maybe it's both of these things because whatever it is, suddenly it's as if Eric Liddell is filled with a power from beyond himself, a second wind for, for life. And all of a sudden, in just a nanosecond, like on wings of eagles, he blows past the competition and takes the gold. And the crowd goes wild. It's just a glorious moment. Well, that is what we see happening in the story of Joseph, too. On his way to victory as a leader. First, we see him passionately pushing from the pull of temptation. Then we see him lifting his head and looking towards the heavens. I don't know if you caught that. In, the, in, in what he actually says, uh, that movement of his life and the words that he speaks to Potiphar's wife. Joseph says, in, in effect, look, it's not just that I'd be betraying your husband if I slept with you. It's not just that I'd be failing myself or failing you uh, by slipping up here. It's not just that I'd be sacrificing my integrity. It's not just that I'd be setting a terrible example for the other members of the household who might be watching my example, that's all true. But here's the nailer, Joseph says. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I, how could I do this to the God who I know is watching me? In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, uh, author Jerry Bridges tells us how much that vision of God counts in the life of self-discipline that characterizes the greatest of leaders. And Bridges goes on to say, our first problem sometimes in dealing with the various sinful seductions that come our way in life, our first problem is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than it is God-centered. We're so much more often concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. When we're involved in the, in the sin, we're just, we're just kind of turning in on ourselves instead of thinking about God, fixing our eyes, our gaze upon God. Yet if we could understand the depth of the, of the pain and the passion that we cause God when we fail to discipline our impulses, I think about this as a parent. Dads, think about this. The 
what does it feel like when you see one of your kids who you know is so full of potential? I mean, they could be so much in life, and you see them just doing something that you know is damaging them or other people. Think about what that feels like in your heart when you're watching that. If we, if we could see <laughs> what God feels when we trade in his glorious plan for our life for some momentary indulgence, some virtual Klondike bar, in a sense, over the feast that he really has planned for us. If we could understand that and grasp the hope and the agony the Heavenly Father feels when we come to those moments of temptation, if we could feel that and see him, it would eclipse, I think, all of the seductions of our life and lead us to a new kind of, of focus and behavior. You know, our family has got so many marvelous I'm father to three amazing sons and one really glorious Bernese mountain dog. Uh, it's our only daughter is our Bernese mountain dog. Her name is Christmas. Guess which time of year we got her. Uh, Christmas is an amazing animal. She is the best pet we've ever had. Um, she's a really good girl, as we call her that very often in our house. Good girl, Christmas. And, uh, you know, um. Very well-behaved animal for the, for the main, but there are these times when she's challenged in her behavior. Sometimes I'll be coming in from the grill, and I, I will be carrying maybe too many things, and a piece of meat will fall off the platter, and boom, it hits the ground. Christmas has extremely good ears and very good smell, and it catches her attention, and she will immediately move towards the meat <laughs> and then stop just short of it. And we will say to her, Christmas... And she'll look at the meat. She wants that piece of meat. <laughs> All she gets is dry kibble most of the time. It's, this meat is hers. And she's salivating. She's longing for it, but she's not really going for it yet. And when it, the temptation to go for the meat becomes particularly strong, she looks up into the eyes of her master. And she maintains a lock on us. And it gives her the willpower. 90% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> to avoid the temptation. You get this image? You get this idea? Through the race story, through the Christmas story. This, this is the strategy that God wants us to, to try. We can give ourselves, we can make the choice in moments of temptation to give ourselves to a sublime fascination greater than our obsessions. We just have to look to God in those moments. Uh, we need to look to him. And we can draw a second wind in those moments, a second wind of willpower in those moments that comes from him. Uh, I love the uh, old song. We don't sing it often enough anymore. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim by the light of his glory and grace. So if you want to exercise more of the kind of self-discipline, self-control that marks the lives of the greatest kind of leaders, that enables them to push through the tough stuff and get on and get stuff done, then, then here's what we need to do. One, muster up enough holy passion to push away from the temptations in your life. Secondly, lift your head 
and look to heaven. Don't try and do it all on your own power. In fact, the biblical uh, fruit of the Spirit we call self-control is not really human willpower. It's God at work providing His will moving through us. Um, so lift your head and look to heaven. Then finally, take some strides in the opposite direction, in the right direction from that which tempts you. Um, the Bible says that Joseph, with his eyes on God, pushes away from Potiphar's wife, and then he turns and runs out of the house. He runs all the way out of the house. Uh, and there's an incredible image in that, I think, for us. Um, what makes him go hard in the opposite direction? Why do you do that? Well, to get an answer to that question, I, I want to bring up the observation once made by the Harvard uh, psychologist and psychiatrist, actually, and a wonderful Christian author, M. Scott Peck, author of The Road Less Traveled in one of his books. He said, there are many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and they believe it possible to skip over the discipline, to find an easy shortcut to sainthood. They're unable to acknowledge the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. In other words, we have to let go of the myth that we're going to be great leaders by just sitting on the couch. Uh, we're going to have to let go of the myth that God is going to one day surprisingly drop a backbone into us that gets us up and going and doing the things that we should be doing, that we want to be doing in our uh, wisest moments. Uh, as Paul says to his spiritual son, Timothy, in one of his letters, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. In fact, the Greek word for self-control, uh, which is the word enkrataia, literally means trained fitness. Self-control isn't something that just drops on you. It's trained fitness. It comes from pushing away and making deliberate steps in a very different direction. The people that successfully resist temptation when they're under pressure in the heat of the moment are usually people who have deliberately trained themselves through purposeful steps when they weren't under such pressure. So let me try and land that, practically speaking, in, in our lives and think about what that might mean for us. Well, if your area of undiscipline is speaking poorly of other people behind their back, Maybe that's, maybe that's one of the patterns in your life. You're used to, you are one of those people that just is a real critic when, when, when the person's not in the room. Then, then practice taking some deliberate steps of praising people when they're not in the room. Go the opposite direction. Replace that behavior with this one and practice that uh, in those other moments. If, 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 if your issue is eating the wrong things when, when you're really, really hungry... Try eating the right things when you're hardly hungry, when hunger's just slightly gnawing at you. Practice then. If your issue is you've got these lustful thoughts towards the opposite sex, uh, you know, you, it, the trigger moment, somebody goes by and you follow, and you have these thoughts start to fill. Practice, practice saying to yourself when nobody's going by, look at that person that you feel no attraction to and say, it's a son or daughter of God. Thank you, Lord, for making people. 
thank you, God, that every one of these people I'm going to see today is one of your kids. Help me to treat them the way you would want me to treat them. In other words, forget trying to take huge, giant strides when the gun goes off and the heat of the moment is there. And instead, practice taking these small steps in the right direction um, when the heat really isn't on. And you'll be amazed, I think, at the distance, the strength, the capacity that you build up over the long marathon of life. Let me close by observing that one of the most important ministries that a father will ever have is modeling and mentoring self-discipline for others. Uh, I really think this is one of the greatest needs of our time. You know, and it's, it's amazing if you look at the popular conceptions of dads in our world today, they are almost always uh, pictured as these flabby, weak-willed people, right? The Homer Simpsons, or the, uh, the, the, the dads, yeah, the Homer Simpsons. Uh, the, 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 guy, the guy with the, 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 just the lack of control of his, of his emotions, of his lusts, of his eating, or whatever it may be. So often that's the picture of fathers. It's not God's picture of fathers. God's picture of fathers is, is men of backbone and principle and integrity and courage. Uh, people that make mistakes but get up again and get back on the track and are running for the gold. Be that kind of dad. Many of you already are those kinds of, of fathers. You've had those kinds of fathers. This is what is needed in our time. When one in five women today is sexually assaulted during her time at college, it is a flashing sign to us that we need fathers and men of self-discipline. Uh, one in five women has an experience like the one we saw played out uh, on the Stanford campus recently. When scores of people are being shot to death every single week in our city by youth that don't know how to control their passions, it is a flashing sign to us that we need men to be mentoring and modeling self-discipline to younger ones. When profanity and vulgarity has become commonplace, even in the highest courts of our land, in our media, our political conversations, when doping is now an ordinary way of getting ahead, it is time for every single one of us who occupy the sacred roles of influence God gives in a society. And if fatherhood ain't a sacred role of influence, I don't know what is. It's time for us to focus further on teaching and demonstrating a life of self-discipline. As Leonard Wagner puts it, and I want to close with this, the world needs men, and I will add, it needs women too, who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who are larger than their jobs, who do not hesitate to take chances, who do not lose their identity in a crowd. The world needs men who will be as honest in small things as in great things who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires. The world needs men and women who will not say they do it because everybody else does it. It needs people who are true to their friends in adversity as well as in prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness and cunning are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, who can say no with emphasis, although the rest of the world 
is saying yes. In other words, the world needs leaders like Joe. Like Joe. May God make you and me leaders like that. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, like you did in Joseph before us, we ask you to help us to develop a holy passion to push away from anything sinful, anything that would limit our fulfillment of the enormous potential you have placed within each of us. In moments of temptation, Lord, lift our heads, fix our eyes upon you, that the beauty of your holiness might eclipse that which would draw us anywhere else, that your Holy Spirit might fill us with the second wind that we need to do your will. Then, Lord, enable us to forget what lies behind. We've all messed up, Lord, every single one of us in this room. Enable us to forget what lies behind and strain instead towards what is ahead so that in personal and practical ways each one of us might run the good race of faith and claim the prize of the upward calling we've received in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen.